Let's begin in chapter 1. As I mentioned, chapter 1 reveals the, the core of the book, quite honestly. And it begins in verse 1 with the revelation, which speaks of the unveiling, the, the revealing of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, which is you and I. He wanted to show us the things which are, the things that, that will be, and, and the things to come, and the things that have been. He says there, it goes on to say in verse 1, things which must shortly take place. We learned as we studied through this, shortly speaks of uh, once these things start in motion, certain key things start happening, it'll happen quickly. You know? And we know that from the understanding of, of even the last 2,000 years, when, we, when the rapture of the church, which is the next significant event in the end times chronology calendar, when that takes place, that ushers in a seven-year period. And then at the end of that seven-year period, Satan is bound. And after he's, when he's bound, it enters into this thousand-year millennial reign. So you've got a thousand and seven years that we know of, with a few, give a little variance in there potentially. And then you have judgment and writing. So it really is very brief in regards to time from Genesis to the rapture. It'll happen shortly. So we see that. We see in verse 19, we're told in chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus says, write these things which you have seen. He's speaking to the Apostle John on the island of Patmos, imprisoned there because he spoke for and stood for and lived out the gospel of Jesus Christ. When Jesus spoke to him here on this island, he gives him some exhortation, which is going to lead into the church in chapter 2. But he said, write the things which you've seen, the things which are, and the things that will take place after this. So that's really a key part of understanding this book. You want to, he was to write the things which he had, has seen, which we know I would suggest you would be chapter 1. And even what he had experienced previously in his own relationship with Jesus Christ. Because he was one of the apostles, of course. And seen things that, you know, many... Well, only a few people got to experience and see. The things which are, which would be the things of the church, church age. Because that's what he's already started into. In chapter 2, he gets into the details and the specifics of the church age. Giving us an emphasis on the seven different churches that were geographically present at that time. Meant to be applied throughout church history. Not just to be exclusive to geography. Applied by you and I. And then the things which will take place after this, after the church age. And we're going to see that when we get to chapter 4, verse 1. But here we have chapter 2 now as we recap chapter 1 and lead into 2. In chapter 2, the common uh, statement, and even in chapter 3, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And and we know from back in verse 1 of chapter 1, he he. revealed these things to show us his servants you and i we are his servants no longer a servant of the prince of this age when you're born again you're a servant of the living god the lord jesus christ and so he wants us to be aware that things will take place after the church age now i did see also and in, in just preparing tonight thinking it through another emphasis and i'm not trying to catch the key or maybe the central theme or the primary verse of the chapter i want to recap what I believe as a pastor, the things that really are in many ways relevant to us in our culture. And it says in verse 6, there are some deeds, but this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. 
See, there are some deeds he hates. There's things even Christians can be drawn into and deceived to do and be a part of. And God says, I hate that. Now, the Nicolaitans, it's Nicolaos, and it means to conquer the people or to rule over the people, the laity. And the early church historians have, have you know, taught and revealed that there, were, there was these Nicolaitans were the followers of a man by the name of Nicholas. And they led lives of unrestrained indulgence. So kind of what it was in, in one sense, and there's many, I think, other ways to interpret this or see the deeds of the Nicolaitans. But there were some that just ruled over other people, uh, whether they be monetarily rich or positionally have power. They, they rule, and it says God hates that. He hates that people raise themselves up and then are overbearing and, 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 and you just literally... Um, they leave un- live, live unrestrained lives, but they put heavy weight upon the people. Not that it would happen in our contemporary politics, where some people would pass a mandate and require them, certain groups below them to do something, but then they do something completely different. That, that is, there is an application, but this is the church he's talking about. You know, this happens in the church as well. The, the people in authority look down on the people that, that are in the congregation. And God just, he, said, he says he hates it. Also, you'll notice in verse 9, that uh, in, in chapter 2, I know your works, the tribulation, poverty, but you are rich. And I know the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear any of these things which you are about to suffer. He knows the deeds of those who are contrary, he knows your suffering as well. And we want to realize that. Sometimes it's easy to think or ponder or perhaps perceive, I, I don't know why I'm going through this. I don't know why I have this. I don't know how come it's like this. And, 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 and what's happening is, in a way, we're, we're perceiving or maybe leaning towards, I just don't think God knows what I'm going through. I don't think he understands the suffering I'm enduring. And he, he knows your suffering. He knows you're suffering when you stand for the truth of the gospel and maybe you, it costs you your job. In some situations, it, it costs you relationships with your kids, with your family members, with coworkers. He knows that suffering. He's, he, he's acquainted, the Bible says in Isaiah, that he's acquainted with our suffering, with our griefs. And then you notice in verse 25 of chapter 2 where he says, but hold fast what you have till I come. Hold on to what you've got. And, and, and that's an encouragement to all of us. Hey, just hold fast. You have seen things change since 2020. And now, functionally, two years later, 2020.2, where we are, we're seeing a decline in freedoms and liberty. We're seeing an increase in, 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 in a form of globalism. We're seeing governmental powers unite in, a, in an agreement on things they would have never agreed on, overbearing presence over people. And, and we realize and we're seeing, and this is getting worse, it's not getting better. But he's saying, you know, just hold fast what you have till I come. Um, I like the, the reality of the, the simple thought, I want to finish well. Can you say that? I mean, you should not you have to verbally say it, but you see what I'm saying? It's like, I want to finish well. I've started in this journey with Jesus Christ, but I want to finish well. And you don't just finish well because you want to. 
the, what we see here even from this text, he's, he's telling us, hold on, hold fast. To hold fast to something is to value it and keep it secure, keep it close. And so hold fast until he comes. Moving to chapter 3, once still speaking to the church, we see also in chapter 3, I know your works. See, this is to the church in Philadelphia, what's referred to as the faithful church. I know your works. And maybe that's enough for us to realize he knows our works. He knows, we know he's, we worked for him, but we weren't doing it because we loved him, because we maybe thought, I have to do it to be in good standing or to earn merit. Some of us have a background of a works-based religion or relationship. But here he's saying, I, I know your works. I, I, I know what you're going through. I know your perseverance, your stick your humility, your teachability. Just stand tight. I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. And that, speaking of not denied my name, you haven't caved to feelings. You haven't caved to the world's pressure in your relationships, in your finances, in your challenges. I know you have a little strength, and that's not meant to be derogatory. Do you understand that? I know you're a little wimp. No, no, that's not what's said. I know you have a little strength, and that strength is enough to hold on to. As we've looked in the past, you know, where, where Paul realized, when I'm weak, I see the strength of the Lord. Therefore, I will glory in my weakness that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So hold on to that what little strength, because that is where our strength comes from. You know, when we realize where our strength comes from, it, 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 it enriches our prayer life because our prayer life is conversation with God. In our conversation, we realize his word. He's teaching us his truth. We're taking hold of these things. And like he knows what we're going through. And he knows as we're trying to move forward or trying to, you know, kind of stay close to him. He just knows what's going on and we have a little strength. So very encouraging. Carries us over to chapter 4, verse 1. After these things. Well, after what things? The context would cause you to look back and see what you've looked at already. And what we've looked at already is chapter 2 and chapter 3, which we know we're addressing the church. So after these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So after what's been taking place. And, and I think it's really easy to see as we'll unfold as we get toward chapter 6. The timing of the rapture seems apparent it would be functionally when the church age is done, he's going to draw his people up. He's going to take us up. And that, that age, that era, will in many ways close. The Holy Spirit is the restraining one, agreed? The Bible tells us that. The Holy Spirit indwells born-again people, takes up residence. And so he does his restraining work, inviting us, enabling us, and allowing us, teaching us to be his ambassadors, his agents, to do this work. So the restraining presence oftentimes is you in the workplace, not agreeing with a particular uh, thought or theory or uh, maybe not participating in the profanity or, or living differently when it comes to morality and ethics and honesty and truth. And so you're, you're a voice, and sometimes you feel intimidated or a weak voice, but you're a voice 
to speak. Now, what God's going to do when he takes his bride, the church, up to heaven, the, the work of the Holy Spirit is going to change. The influencing presence that was there through his people is going to be different. It's going to be removed. He'll still influence because God doesn't stop being here if he's omnipresent. He's present everywhere, but he, he will work differently, as we know, when we see the judgment and the various things that take place from Revelation chapter 6 on. We know he's, in, he's working in the world differently. And he will remove the church. And look down in verse 11 of chapter 4. The 24 elders are there, the, the people that are there in heaven, and they declare, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Very important passage for all of us. Um, Sometimes we get to thinking, and our emotions get to running, and our feelings get to faltering. Let's go back to this simplicity. You're worthy, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. All our, although we have, He's willing to receive. He's worthy to receive it. For you created all things. And by your will, they exist and were created. We exist according to his will, individually. We know that we will have a day of departure, agreed? It'll either be a group departure or one by one or individually until that day. Now, my parents identified my birth date, but they never told me my date of departure. Because nobody knows the day or the hour that we will depart individually, nor the day or the hour when he'll return. And that's why the other things we looked at are important to be able to just finish well, stay focused, always remembering he is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. When, when things are weak, things are hard, things are difficult and trying and disturbing, he is still Lord. He is still God. He is still faithful. He cannot stop being faithful because he is faithful. He will not stop being himself. Even when we're faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. And I have to, there's times I have to just set that in my mind. I read about these shootings and I, I see things happening and I see even some things in our own community that are just wrong. And I'm like, man. But then I got to remind myself, but he's right. His ways are perfect. His ways are true. Moving on into chapter five, as we recap Revelation and look at some key points, let's look at verse eight of Revelation five. When he had taken the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And then it goes on just in continuing about this beautiful song and what they're singing. But what a, this verse eight, what a great expression of worship. What a great glimpse of the reality of prayer. Did you see that? That the golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of you and I. It's our prayers, the prayers of the saints. Like incense rising in a beautiful aroma in the very presence of God. That's how he describes our prayers. And so when we're praying in the spirit, when we're learning to, as his disciples learned, you remember John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Jesus' disciples observed that and came to Jesus and said, as John taught his disciples to pray, could you teach us to pray? And then we get the model prayer, which some refer to as the Lord's Prayer, but it wasn't his prayer. It was an example of relationship and how we we were to pray. So we're we're taught to pray. And then you have this spoken of here 
in this future time after the rapture of the church in the very presence of God during the tribulation period that's taking place down here on earth, the, these prayers are present. Uh, here would be an example prayer that I believe are like incense just before God. God, your will be done in my life. Oh God, reign victorious, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We've prayed that, right? You have privately prayed that at one point or another, I'm confident. Like, Lord, just come, Lord Jesus, come. They're retained in heaven for the perfect time of fulfillment. He knows and answers prayer, and his timing is perfect, and his answers are perfect. Now, I have prayed as uh, a toddler, you ever had a toddler, like someone just, a little child just learning to talk, and they ask things like, can I have the moon? I mean, a really kind of silly little toddler request to a parent. Have you ever had a silly little toddler request to your father in heaven? Yes, probably. I'm pretty confident. Because it's, it's the relationship. But as we grow in prayer, we actually, like any other conversation and relationship, we mature in the boundaries of the relationship, and we request things that are actually in accordance with his will. We find ourselves praying his will more than our own will. We, we throw some addendums on there. Lord, I just pray whatever you desire in my life. I'd prefer a little cash flow and less trials. But honestly, I really would rather be close to you than anything in this world. So however it works out. Or we pray for somebody because we see the oppression they experience. We see the poverty they go through, poverty of soul, poverty of friendship. We see what they're going through. We pray, God, could you, do they just have relief? We see terrible things done. We read about horrible happenings in our world. And we pray for that. We pray about them. We pray them through. God, is there sometimes, are you, when will you judge, O oh Lord? O oh righteous God, when will you put an end to this evil on this planet? And those prayers are not just like, they literally rise like, incense to the very presence of God. Let's look in chapter 6, because in chapter 6 is when the judgments will be poured out incrementally. So there'll be six judgments that are seal judgment and then a seventh declaration, and then there will be the um, trumpet judgments, seven as well, and then the bowl or vial judgments will come out. So you see there's, he, he broke it into three groups, if you will. They get more intense as they go along. They're going to be relative to some other things that are happening during the tribulation period. But in chapter 6, let's take a special note at verses 15 through 17. And the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the commanders, the mighty men, every slave and every free man hid themselves in the caves and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face who, of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand it. So this early on in this judgment recorded in the book of Revelation the beginning point, if you would, after the church is removed and this judgment starts being poured out as we see the various things that bring hardship and poverty and lack and all these things on the earth, we're told early on, it's the wrath of the Lamb. And that's very important because we know in First Thessalonians chapter 5, we're told that you know, as, as this issue of death and future and everything is addressed to the early church in Thessalonica, we're told that God did not appoint us to wrath, 
And it goes on in the latter part of chapter 5, therefore comfort one another with these words. So the words, the truth about the, the tribulation was revealed and, he, and it were, the, the church would be removed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And that there's the, we're going to find comfort in that. If you're going to go through the wrath of God, I don't think you're going to find much comfort in that. When you're going through it. And I think as you see this, you think about, because sometimes people, you know, they think, well, I don't, I don't think that the, what we see in Revelation is entirely his wrath. Uh, I think there's some stuff that's allegorical perhaps, or maybe metaphorical, or it might be an analogy of some other times in history. You know, it's best to take what the Bible simply says and receive it simply. Unless you're directed to some other thing, unless it says, well, it's like this, or you're given the interpretative liberties to say, well, it's similar to this, like they're comparing it to. But when it says it's the wrath of the Lamb, you don't have the liberty to interpret differently, correct? That says what it is. And so therefore, we got to go, why would he pour his wrath out on the one he calls his bride? He is the groom, refers to the church as his bride, a term that God established to show in a human experience the greatest, closest, most intimate relationship two people can have, a husband and a wife by his design. And so he takes that pinnacle, that peak of human interaction, and says, listen, I'm the groom, you're the bride. So when we realize that's his terminology, then it, we, it makes it a little easier to understand, well, he, he's not going to pour his wrath upon his bride. And I know they've been debating this and discussing this for 2,000 years, but I think if you just back away from preconceived ideas and opinions and doctrine that we interpret to support instead of interpret to understand, then I think we'll find that it's not that complex. But moving on, let's move to chapter 7. In chapter 7, specifically, let's consider verses 13 and 14. Then one of the elders, elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And John, he said, I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So here in chapter 7 already, speaking of the tribulation, and the tribulation saints. The church will be removed, but the Holy Spirit will still minister to people. In, in chapter 7, we also have the 144,000 mentioned. We'll come back to that here in a little bit. We'll see those. So we know that God is bringing the gospel of Jesus Christ to the remaining people who have rejected it. Because the judgment is on a Christ-rejecting world. And so as... They have rejected Christ. This bizarre thing called the rapture has happened, leaving the world in a social, even socioeconomic disorder. And so here's this disorder, and now the gospel is still being brought to people. People are still coming. I, I think one of the greatest harvests in all of human history will be during that time, according to what we see with the, what the two witnesses do and the 144,000. So these are ones that were martyred, that died for faith in Jesus Christ during the tribulation period. Moving us on over to chapter 8 and verse 4. Back to a topic we, we touched on uh, earlier and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angels' hands. 
the prayers are answered. You, the prayer that we would have, you know, when we read about things, that, the shooting like in Texas, and we see some of the things that are happening in Ukraine, and we're aware of the things that have always for decades, centuries, taken place in China and other communist countries. When we're um, aware of, of some of the way village people and different people in Africa are horribly abused and, and violently murdered, it's been going on, and we're saying, God, how long before you judge and punish evil? That's one of your prayers. That's one of my prayers. When's it all going to unfold? Well, I believe we're seeing it right here. This is that uh, point, as we see in verse 4. You know, this, this the prayers of the incense ascended before God, and then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightning, and an earthquake. Seven angels who had seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. And then the first trumpet, and another layer, another uh, increment of judgment is be pour, being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. In chapter 9, we have the, uh, I've referred to it as the demons from the deep. One of the angels opens up the abuso, verse 2 there, the bottomless pit. Smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. What happened on earth? John's observing from heaven. Then out of the smoke, locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were given authority to kill them, or not to, or were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire death and de- to die and death will flee from them. It's the uh, undead reality that uh, Hollywood kind of turns into some morbid fascination. But people will want to die and they can't. And they'll be in such a state that, you know, they're just, you think that they would just repent, but they won't repent. Um, they, it says in verse 21, and they did not repent of the, murders or sorceries or sexual morality or their thefts. You know, they want to die, but they won't repent. No, I'm not going to do it. It's, it's, these, and it's, I, like I said, I mentioned the key in that chapter or a point is the demons from the deep. God is going to open up and uh, allow a Christ-rejecting world, those who remain, a glimpse of what they're asking for. I don't want God. I'll, I'll take anything but God. So the abuso is opened up and out come these demonic creatures of some form and um, that I, I believe are actually living creatures. I don't think they're Apache helicopters or some other things, but who knows, I could be wrong on that. It just seems to indicate a, a creature with some form of uh, uh, submission to the authority over them, but also a measure of independence for its, its calling and purpose. Chapter 10, we have, you know, chapter 9 was demons from the deep. Chapter 10, we have angels from above. Um, We see in verse 1, I saw still another mighty angel coming down from heaven, clothed with the cloud, and a rainbow was on his head. His face was like the sun, and his feet like the pillars of fire. This angel goes down and puts one foot on the sea and one foot on the land. Some believe that to be Jesus. It's certainly possible with the verbiage and the wording. Um, There's other parts within that that indicate that it would be a different person because of his conversation with God. Nonetheless, I, I lean toward there's just angels from above. 
So as things are unfolding down here, where are you? You're in heaven. You're, 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 and I, I don't believe you're in heaven watching from the upper echelon, the, the, the high seats. I don't believe you're looking at it at all. Because, for one, we're in the presence of God without the distraction of sin, with forgiveness in our, in, our, in our resurrected bodies. And we know from later chapters that there's not even a need for a, a son because his presence fully illuminates, perfectly sets the lighting for heaven. And I believe we're going to be so enraptured, so focused, so aware of his presence that we won't be looking to the things behind us and the things of the past. Because can we agree, if, if you're in heaven and gazing upon this, this judgment upon earth on a Christ-rejecting world, you're not going to be going, yeah, got another one, take that one down too, get that guy over there. You know I mean? That would be horrible to have that, you wouldn't have that attitude. God does not judge people because it just, he enjoys it. He has to do it because he's righteous and just and worthy of all praise. So let's move along because the clock's still ticking and um, we're only halfway. So we're not even that way. Chapter 11, we have the two witnesses. As you see there, uh, these two witnesses, we know in detail there, they will stand and, and they will declare the gospel. Um, they will seem to lose. It will appear like it did at the crucifixion. When Jesus had declared the truth, he confronted the Pharisees, and in a practical sense, in a brief summary, ended up getting dead. He didn't win. And for just a brief moment, he was on a cross, and then placed in a tomb, and appeared that he failed. But we know the rest of the story. We know what happened. He rises from the dead, conquers death and hell. Well, these two were killed, and they, the people, they, it's on CNN and everywhere globally, instantaneously. And there's much celebration that these two witnesses are dead. Now, you know they had to have a powerful influence to make such a public deal about their death. But we know they also rise from the dead, these two witnesses do, declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ. Chapter 12, we have... Uh, if you look in verse 9, we have Satan, you know, the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and angels were cast out with him. In the last three and a half years of the tribulation, Satan will be even more focused and aggressive. In verse 10, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ has come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. Uh, he has an element of interaction with God coming before him. And we know that he's an accuser of the brethren. Making accusation against you and I even. I don't understand how this unfolds because of the multiplicity of people and the seeming complexity of engagement with so many numbers. But it's really simple. He's just able to do it. And what does he do accusing the brethren, as we've seen when we studied through chapter 12? He accuses you before God. Hey, God, did you see? You know, that was kind of the deal with Job, right? You know, Job went through some intense trials. And no matter what he, Satan was allowed to put on to Job, Satan would come back and say, yeah, that's because you're protecting him. You know, he made it look like, you know, Job wasn't anybody special. He just, you know, he was, he was being accused before God. Just like he accuses you and I before God. Uh, he accuses you before one another. 
before man. He accuses you um, to your brethren. So before one another in the world and in the church, he's an accuser of the brethren. And he's an accuser of you to you. He's the one that convinces you you're not worthy to serve, you're not capable, you're not qualified, your issues, your history, your whatever. God is not the one saying that. It's the accuser of the brethren. Well, he's going to lose this opportunity. He's going to go all out for three and a half years, the last three of the tribulation. When he's no longer able to go before God in heaven, he will pour out his hatred and lies and desire for death upon the remaining inhabitants of this earth. There's a desire for death that is demonic in its source. We know that because Jesus said of the enemy, of the devil, he has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and that more abundantly. So he came to steal, kill, and destroy, and that's what you're seeing in the headlines. And you know the source of that. We're already told. Moving to chapter 13, let's glance at verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. In chapter 13, it was revealed there was another servant of Satan, a beast like a lamb, only with the, the voice, the mouth of evil. Many believe that the, the, the one beast, because there's two of them listed here, uh, beginning in verse 1, and then again at verse 11 we looked at, um, the one beast will be more political, the second beast more of a religious leader, the false prophet. So we see these agents of, um, the, of the enemy, of Satan, they're, they're working for him. So they're about his business. Now in chapter 14, we have the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. They're introduced there at the beginning of it. In verse 8, we're told, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen. Babylon, we studied and seen. It's Satan's system seducing men into following an earthly-oriented type of rule and government. That's what's going to happen on earth in the latter part of the tribulation period, people will be worshiping this system. Things are already in place for this system. The beta version was introduced in 2020. And it's been fine-tuned with version 1.1, 1.2, 2.0, 2.2. You know, we don't get the luxury of seeing what the variation. You, know, you get your phone updates, right? It says ready for an update and it'll tell you what, what version of update it is. It might even give you a hint at what why you would want this update. They'll tell you things positive or what they think you would buy or believe. And so this is already in place in our world, this type of government. Well, this, this angel, also we see in chapter 14 and verse 9, this third angel, you know, was present, warning. Notice what it is. He's not warning. This is our warning. A third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God. So some have asked early on, do you think the, the um, injection, which they actually call falsely a, a immunization, but is, do you think that COVID injection is a uh, mark, is that the mark of the beast? Do you think that if I do this, is it, is it in my worship? Well, no, it, you will know. If someone who's here, they will know. It won't be a, a subtle thing that's a deception. Did you catch what he says? It says that that in verse 9, who worships the beast and his image, who bows before them, rejects God. As we've already seen, people would rather die than repent. 
They'll continue to reject God. They'll take this mark of the beast with a complete disregard for the living God and a complete idolatrous focus on the system that will provide for them. That's why they'll take it. It's a monetary system. Without it, you can't buy or sell or get food or do anything. So now you would take that. And man, there's something going on right now. I guess you got to the clock lightly touch on it. You know, in the world economy right now, there's a big push. It's been introduced in China and other countries have, have embraced it. And Europe is really embracing it. Um, it's programmable digital monetary system. Really fascinating in a freaky way. So it's a programmable money. So in other words, it's actually not money. So it's digitally into your account. So you're not going to have to carry the stuff. But because it's what they refer to as programmable, if you have bought too much of a certain thing or your social score, credit scores, what China works off of a little bit, your social credit score, in other words, the way you engage and follow orders and do what the government says, is low, then you can't purchase certain things. You would go to pay. It's not cash you're whipping out. It's a number. And they would say, you, you, you don't have money to spend for that purpose. It's really, I think it's, like I say, it's, I'm just fascinated by that stuff. But I'm a weirdo. I'm fascinated because I just see these things being tested and being presented and being worked out. And it just verifies what we're reading. And when there's a, or it's not that far away. What would you do if when you went to get money out of your account, you get a memo or a pop-up? You, um, you have ex, you know, exhausted your resources for this type of purchase. Like, shut up, I'll spend my money on what I want to spend it on. No, you won't, because it's programmable. It's controlled in different ways. You, you want a firearm? Tough. There's too many firearms, because if we take away firearms, people won't hurt each other. <laughs> That's what'll happen, you know. You might as well take away cars, knives, rocks, hard objects, sharp objects, it's not the hands of a man that's the problem in this world. It's the heart of a man that's the problem in the world. And when the heart's bad, Cain will kill Abel. Bottom line, it's been repeated, but we do not have time for that tangent. So we'll, we'll, we'll move along. Let's move to, uh, let's see, we're 15, chapter 15? Yeah. Chapter 15, look at verse 3. This is the song of deliverance and great victory. Then they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all nations shall come and worship before you. That's saying in heaven and not on the earth. Do you see what happens in Revelation? It vacillates. It goes from one screen showing you the future of what's going to happen in heaven and a parallel screen of some of the things that are happening on earth. Some of those things are current to the reader. Some of those things are future. So you got at least four screens that are kind of changing. You see what I'm saying? It's a way to kind of see what's taking place. This is the declaration of heaven. Now we see in verse 16, or in chapter 16, let's glance over at verse 14. For this, they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. 
This is leading up to what's known in verse 16, declared to be, in essence, the battle of Armageddon, of Megiddo. But what we see here is this strategy, I've already referenced it, is in play in the world right now. That, that strategy that's unveiled, if you would, in verse 14. The spirits of demons perform in signs and they go out to the leaders of the world. And they, the, the leaders of the world actually, the Klaus Schwab and, you know, the social media leaders and, the, you know, the, the governmental leaders. The governmental leaders aren't, they're kind of a distraction to us. We think of governments and boundaries. But it's the social leaders and the, and the monetary leaders that influence the government. But people naturally look towards their government leader without realizing they're controlled by those with money more than anybody wants to admit. But anyway, the, who's controlling the whole group? We're told right here, spirits of demons performing signs. I think some people are very, 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 very rich. And they think it's because of their accolades, their ability, their accomplishments, their timing in the market and all these things. It's not. It's Satan shelling out cash because he's going to use them as a puppet. And they don't even know Satan exists. They pretend like he's not there. And if you say someone's not there, then they're not there. They don't exist. I mean, just like a little kid who can cover his eyes, like, I can't see you, you're not there. That's kind of how some people that are very intelligent actually function. They, 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 they're fed their ego, they're, in doc, they're, they're drunken on their own egos, and they actually think they're something, and they, Satan just continues to feed them, because he's going to use them, and people will follow him, and a lot of these things. Chapter 17 speaks of Babylon, the religion of the tribulation. Um, this is going to be the religion carried about by the beast, Ultimately, by Satan himself. It'll appear that the beast is uh, under the power of Babylon, but in reality, Satan's just propping up religion until the right time to crush it. We can see that out of verse 3. We see in verse 4 the woman, speaking of religion, Babylon, was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. This in times on earth religious system will be clothed in emblems of luxury this system this woman system it'll seem to be successful and profitable and popular everybody will be on board with it but in reality it's in, it's it's immoral and it's powerless before the living god it, it, and it'll it'll all come down it'll crash all at once chapter 18 the fall of the world systems Religious, monetary, political. They're, they're identified in, in these chapters a little bit. Um, but we know it's really one ruler over them, Satan himself. And we see in verse 22 of chapter 18. The sound of harpists and musicians and flutists and trumpeters shall not be heard in you anymore. No craftsman of any craft shall be found in you anymore. And the sound of a millstone shall not be heard in you anymore. It collapses. The world system, this religious, monetary, political system will all crash. All the partying and mocking and immorality that was key to this blasphemous system will be permanently put to an end. It'll, it'll come in a crash that will just be devastating to people. And, um, you know, people have a, a way of declaring independence without realizing their dependence. Recently, you know, over a little over a week ago, almost two weeks ago, what was seen as a decentralized monetary system and has really been healthy and growing from a financial formula perspective, the crypto, you know, digital currency thing, it crashed, crashed hard. 
enough that there was a couple of the different ones. One of them was like ranked 28 out of several hundred. It crashed, and they set up a suicide hotline. Because, see, people declare they're not dependent. I'm just making my own decisions. But they invested somewhere and so heavily invested in these things. And it crashed so hard, like the depression of our American history, where people jumped out windows and committed suicide because their finances. And they didn't realize they were worshiping their finances. They were tied to that. So we see you know, hints at that. People, even in this, you know, in this age, even more so, were reading about the latter part of the tribulation period. Now we're over to, verse, to chapter 19. I'll draw your attention to verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and make war, makes war. Jesus entered the first time on a donkey, meek and lowly, donkey symbolic of peace, coming in peace to free humanity. Now he comes as a conqueror and a ruler on a white horse, speaking of purity and power. He is faithful and true. And he judges, carries out the sentence of defeat upon those who defy him. People on earth will continue to deny him even when they see him return. They'll try to war against him. That's with the whole assembly and gathering together to try to, to kill him, to kill God. Which they're, they're trying to do that now. Trying to somehow remove God. But this is going to be the pinnacle of that. Um, they tried to kill him once before, right? Remember the crucifixion? Yeah, it didn't work out so well, you know. He, he reigned victorious even then. That carries us to chapter 20. Chapter 20, the highlight, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. We will reign with Jesus in that thousand-year period, which is referred to as the millennial reign of Christ. We see in verse 10 that the devil who deceived them, in other words, Satan was bound for a thousand years, thousand-year period comes to an end, Satan's released. And he deceives those who were in the millennial reign because they lived at a time there was not deception. There was not, you know, um, in a weird kind of way, there was not the option for good or evil. They were only experiencing good. So now God releases Satan, and those who lived through that millennial period can make their choice. And you'd think if you were in the millennial period... And you've seen the, this phenomenal rule of God without the tormentor, the deceiver, the one who's trying to steal, kill, and destroy. You go, man, I don't need a choice. I know what I want. But sadly, some will even turn from God when they're giving this choice. Because love requires a choice, an opportunity to choose. Well, in verse 10, Satan, after he has deceived them, he says that the beast... And the false prophet, which are already in the Abuso, the, the lake of fire. And he will be thrown there and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Some people would rather hear of the term annihilation. That you just stop, to, stop existing when, you're, when you die. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that God created a place for Satan and his leadership team, if you would. And it's this, this place of torment. And I believe Satan's known that all along. But there's other people that end up in that. It's not why he created it for people, but humanity will be in there because there's people who choose to reject God and embrace Satanism, demonic activity. And, and that's where they'll spend eternity, you know, completely separated from God. Don't let people deceive you or emotions disturb you. God does not teach annihilation where you just stop to exist after a certain point. 
And I know some say, well, that doesn't seem fair. It's like, well, I think I read back in about chapter five or six that God is righteous and just, holy and true and worthy of our praise. He, he knows what he's doing because he's also proven that he's a loving and gracious God. Chapter 21, we have a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. Let's read it. Now I saw, in verse 1 of 20, chapter 21, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. These, there shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. This new heaven and a new earth and new Jerusalem. And of course, chapter 22 is a description of heaven to come. So we started on the island of Patmos where Jesus met John and then took him through what was taking place and would happen until the church is removed. And when the church is removed, raptured from this planet to be with the bride, to be with the groom, those who had rejected God would still be here dealing with the judgment of God. Still having an opportunity at that point to come to a, a life of faith in Jesus Christ. A seven year tribulation period will take place. The end of that tribulation period we know um, Satan is held. He's chained for a thousand years. The millennial reign takes place. All building to this point of chapter 20, 21, 22, with this new heaven and a new earth. And, and this, this, we're, we're given some of the insight and the understanding, but notice the emphasis, and we see it spoken three times. We see it in verse 7 of chapter 22. Behold, I'm coming quickly. And again in verse 12, and behold, I'm coming quickly. And in verse 20, surely I am coming quickly. I'm just going to go out on a limb. Jesus wants you to remember something. I'm coming quickly. It's going to happen in a moment, in an instant. So be ready. And, and that's really what I see, even the title for tonight, is be ready. Be ready for his return. So what do we do? How do we live? How do we live now? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll pick up in 57. You can read from 50 on later where it speaks of it in the twinkling of an eye at this very, you know, the last trumpet that the dead will, will be raised incorruptible and be changed and the things that will be taking place. But how do we live until that moment when we're raptured? Verse 57. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We want to be aware of that, knowledgeable, that we're a part of a bigger family than we realize. The brethren that God calls us, that we're to be established and stationary, steadfast and immovable, able to weather storms or resist distractions, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know, basically speaks of putting your all into it, knowing that he knows all things. He knows our struggles, our suffering, but he knows our service as well. We know flesh and blood cannot go to heaven, 
but it was flesh and blood that paid for our new bodies. It was flesh and blood that paid the price of our new bodies.